0: If one doesn't work, you have the other. But the thing it really does is it gives you spine, right? When you know that someone else is there with a reasonable price, it, gets, it lets you with confidence say something that you might otherwise say without confidence. And when you're negotiating a deal, it is all about confidence and tone and body language and yeah, you know, there's so, so much of that stuff. Welcome to the Cashing Out podcast, where
1: our fellow founders share real stories and offer honest advice around selling their companies to some of the top acquirers in the world. My name is Todd Sullivan, CEO of ExitWise, where we help business owners create the exits they deserve. Today, my guest is Matt Blumberg, a former management consultant, venture capitalist, and early employee who helped Phone move into the internet age and get acquired by AOL. With his well-rounded training, Matt's biggest professional success came by co-founding ReturnPath, a company that provides email intelligence solutions for marketers. Matt and his team grew the company to 500 employees and 100 million in revenue. Along his 20-year journey, Matt was approached four times to sell the business. After four failed attempts for various reasons, he finally completed a sale to Validity, a consumer data company in 2019. Today, Matt is the co-founder and CEO of Bolster, a talent marketplace to match highly experienced executives with fractional and project-based roles to help startups scale. In this episode, Matt shares his insights on how creating better personal relationships with acquirers can de-risk M&A transactions, how to bounce back from a failed M&A transaction, and how building a company with work-life balance in mind can lead to a great outcome. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Matt Bloomberg. Matt, thank you for doing this. I have been fired up to talk to you because when I've learned about your background, I think you've just been so intentional about the building blocks of expertise and talent that has led you to building this amazing company, having an exit and now off to building another company, Um, starting in consulting, doing venture capital, building a really cool company within a company, helping take it public, I think, if I'm right.
0: I I joined right after uh, the IPO
1: okay and then starting a company to drive into 100 million dollars keeping that for a long time so i know there's some good stories there and having that great exit and then certainly want to touch on the company that you're running today because that sounds very exciting and some parallels to what we're doing i i just want you to know that when i found out that i could have you in this time slot i bumped mark cuban immediately so thank you for being here
0: (laughs) yeah uh Sounds good. <laughs>
1: <laughs> he, he was just on Billions. So I think last week he wasn't available, but he was today and you got the spot. So thank you. So like I said, I think it is just so cool the way you started this business and built a skill set, really starting in consulting. And I started also in consulting right out of business school. So I kind of know that training that you went through. Maybe you could just start there and build up through the kind of progression of your career.
0: Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I kind of always wanted to be an entrepreneur. I wasn't one of those like child entrepreneurs. Like uh-huh. I didn't have a lemonade stand, but my dad was was a tech entrepreneur in the early 80s. Wow. And he had actually been in he was in a very early uh, venture capitalist in the late 60s and 70s. And I kind of always like that's what I grew up with. So I kind of had that bug. Actually, you could argue both of my grandfathers were entrepreneurs at least one of them. So I kind of always wanted to do that but like in When I came out of college in 92, you didn't just go do that, right? It's not like now where you're doing it in your dorm room. So my first job out of college was in management consulting at a firm called, uh, I was actually hired into a firm called Strategic Planning Associates, which then became Mercer Management Consulting, which now is called Oliver Wyman. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was my first couple of years out of college. It was an amazing job. My dad really encouraged me to do that. He said, you know, I think consulting will give you good breadth. And actually it, it really did. And I always say that that's a job that I should have paid them to give me because I spent a couple of years, I learned a bunch of different industries. I learned a bunch of different problems to solve a bunch of different analytic techniques and software packages to solve them. I learned how to create presentations, how to deliver presentations, how to work in a team, how to, I mean, it was just, you know, it was nonstop learning mm-hmm. and uh, very broad based and very big company. And then I had an opportunity that I, I wasn't looking for. I was kind of thinking about going back to business school and I got recruited to join General Atlantic Partners, which at the time was a top-tier venture capital firm. Now, sure. obviously, a top-tier private equity firm. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I jumped on that because VC is a really hard business to get into at any level. Yeah. And worked there for uh, you know the short stint as well that was also supposed to be pre-business school. Yeah. And that's where I really got a lot closer to the entrepreneurial action. You know, When you're a junior guy at a venture firm, you're doing the deal sourcing. And then if a deal shows up, you're working on the deal and then you you don't really get to work with portfolio very much. Yeah. But I kept having these meetings with entrepreneurs and I kept coming away from them thinking like, wow, I'll, I kind of want to do what that person's doing hmm. much more than I want to do what I'm doing. So I learned a bunch there and I have a great network from there. But after I'd been there for a while, I asked the partner I was working with if he could introduce me to some of the portfolio CEOs to go do another short job also before business school. Mm-hmm. P.S. I never went to business school. So and I, I kept thinking I was building toward that and he introduced me to a bunch of portfolio CEOs. And then he introduced me to this company, Moviefone, as well, which was not in the portfolio. But he and the founder of Moviefone were friends socially. So I had all these interviews with CEOs where they didn't really know what to do with me. Like these were all, you know, startups. And like, what do you do with a kid who's been a management consultant in a venture capital associate like nothing right (laughs) they all kind of said the same thing which is like well you seem like a smart guy and you know how to seem like you work hard and you know things so they all had some version of the same job for me which is like come in for a year be like a chief of staff or a special projects person and and kind of see where it goes so i ended up going to this company movie phone which was just post ipo when i joined although very small and small cap company and it was i always describe it as the internet before the internet so the company was started in the late 80s as an interactive movie guide on a touchtone phone.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, so you have to like wind your brain back to there's no internet. And the way people got movie showtimes was they opened a newspaper or they called a theater and got mm-hmm. a busy signal usually. Yeah. And the way you got tickets in advance was to walk to the theater when the theater was open. And that was it and the way you consumed movie advertising was on television and in newspaper two-page spreads and maybe radio and maybe some billboards yep so that was the movie business before the internet and movie phone totally you know opened the door to blowing that apart and it's obviously totally different now Mm -hmm. but in 1989 you know these guys had the idea of creating a central branded phone number and an advertising and e-commerce model. There was just no screen associated with it. It was mm-hmm. a touch-tone phone. So I had a really interesting job there. My first special project was, uh, and this is early 95, tell us what the this internet thing is, and should we do something with it? Mm-hmm. So I ended up being there for a little over four years and and started and ran the internet business inside of a small cap public company. That was an interactive media and services company, but was really not an internet company. And it was really interesting. I mean, I had, you know, I got to build a business inside of a business. So there were some pieces of it that I owned and some pieces I didn't own. Mm-hmm. The business obviously scaled tremendously once we got it going. It was the dawn of the commercial internet. So super interesting times to be building a, you know, a, at the time it was like a top 50 website. As a twenty-five-year-old, I didn't know anything more, much more about it than anyone else knew about it. Yeah, Movie Phone was a great brand if you were in big city U.S. and you know that demographic. You know, Movie Phone was on Seinfeld; it was on The Simpsons; it was you know super fun sure. to be part of, and great experience of, of building that business and launching the product, etc. And then we ended up selling Movie Phone, the whole company, to AOL end of ninety-eight or beginning of ninety-nine when AOL was the company. Yep. Right. I mean, that was today's Google plus Facebook. Yes. And, you know, again, I wasn't a founder, but I was on the executive team and I was part of the deal team. So super, super interesting experience. That's fantastic.
1: Yeah. I, there's so many things running through my head. I just, I remember welcome to movie phone, right? right? When you picked up the phone and get in your uh, theater times. Yes. Um, I also started in consulting out a business school and and worked on a big AOL um, kind of low, low quality ISP and mm-hmm. what they should be doing right. that. And, and now that you're saying that, I believe AOL owned it at the time. So that's pretty interesting. You got to see that acquisition, right? Build up a product that was complementary, right? To movie phone, helping it evolve in, into yeah. the Internet space. And then it was sold to
0: AOL. Correct. The whole the whole company, the phone service, uh-huh. all it. the ticketing infrastructure and the Internet. In uh, the internet business. So
1: I'd love to hear what was your role in that because you must have had kind of a front row seat if you're building a really important component.
0: Yeah. I mean, the, the, I think everyone on the executive team was involved in some way or another. There were a couple of us that were really on the deal team. And, you know, I credit the experience I had in venture capital to like I had been through transactions before. Sure, so sure. I think they, they uh, sort of put me on that with, with a couple other people. And uh, it was really interesting. I mean, the heyday of Internet 1.0 was crazy right? In some ways, I yeah. think even crazier than some of the subsequent, you know, bubbles heydays. and heydays. And it was just, a, it was a fascinating process to go through. The whole thing started and it, the, it sort of started and ended in the same place. And it started with my boss, uh, Andrew, who was the founder of Movie Phone, sitting at the premiere of You've Got Mail, the Tom mm-hmm. Hanks, Mag Ryan movie about AOL, or that included AOL, right? And he was sitting like, Between Bob Pittman, who ran AOL, Mm -hmm. and Barry Diller, and I'm sure I'm getting the details wrong, but the gist of it is, you know, Bob Pittman looked at him and said, we should buy a movie phone. Like, that should be part of the company. And Andrew was a consummate, consummate deal guy. Yeah. uh, And, you know, phenomenal uh, mentor. And I, you know, I think he said, eh, "Whatever, we're not for sale." Anyway, PS, AOL ended up buying the company, and there was a, a you know, the process be- between that movie and signing signing the deal was negotiating with AOL. It was also negotiating with Diller, who either overheard the conversation or was the obvious person to call. It was also a brief negotiation with Yahoo and Microsoft, the other two major players at the time, mm-hmm. and and that was a big deal. I mean, it was a public company buying a public company it was this the headline price was 380 or 390 million dollars but then it was uncapped so as AOL's price went up and up and up and up the value of the deal went up wow it closed just under 600 million dollars and it was a moment in between sign and close where it got up to like 900 million or a billion <laughs> yeah. one day and, wow. and this was a small cap public company so the stock never moved like the stock was sitting at you know like four bucks for years. Okay. On a good day, it would be five bucks, and then all of a sudden, it was like it closed at forty-five, and at some point in the middle, it was like at seventy, and just it was an interesting process seeing the negotiation between a you know playing off a couple of really big companies off of each other, doing that in the public market. There was some crazy like insider trading accusation stuff that went on afterwards. Mm-hmm. Really, really uh, kind of interesting, and, and again, like good good foundation for, for me than doing my own thing.
1: Yeah. I was going to ask, so you've obviously taken a lot of lessons and everything you've done into the company that you're building, but in that particular experience, is there something that, that you went through that really informed future M&A that our audience would be, you know, could learn from?
0: I mean, the, the most obvious one from that experience was the importance of having a plan B like Uh, the best plan A is made by having the best plan B. So, you know, what, however it. you want to frame that, right? The, the, um, the business school term for it is the BATNA, right? The best sure. business, uh, alternative to a negotiated agreement. But, uh, you know, just having two bidders, multiple bidders on something just makes everything better. It gives you... So, first of all, if one doesn't work, you have the other. But the yep. thing it really does is it gives you spine, right? Okay, yeah. Right. When you know that someone else is there with a reasonable price, it, it lets you with confidence, say something that you might otherwise say without confidence. Yeah. And when you're negotiating a deal, it is all about confidence and tone and body language. And, you know, there's so, so much of that stuff that, um, when you know someone else is hanging around the hoop that you're equally happy with, unless you say, no, no, 29 a share, not good enough. Got to be 35 a share. And they know you're not bluffing.
1: It's, it's great advice. I think we've touched on it a couple times on this podcast in that, it's not only that you get a spine and you can talk from a position of strength that you have a potential other suitor, but I, I think what we see in transactions is it actually allows you to take control over the timeline.
0: Yes, a little yes, bit better. Yes, right? yes, yes. Really,
1: sure. re- really important, right? So your buyer or potential buyers can't really use time against you when you can say, "Hey, IOIs are due, yeah. LOIs are due. Everybody else is in, and you are yeah. not. Yeah. Are you serious about this?" And then not in due diligence, right? You can set due diligence timeframes. If, if we're going to sign this, you're going to commit to this time timeframe. Totally. And so I, I lean less on the the confidence that you have in how you speak. And maybe I should think more like that. I think where that comes up the most in our transactions is when somebody makes an offer and we say, look, Our alternative is we're going to keep running and growing an amazing company. We're sitting on a rocket ship, and he is more than happy to keep doing this. So you have to make a move here, or let's just not waste everybody's time. That's one angle. That is. And I think it's a great angle for founders who receive inbound interest. I always encourage them to say, look, if they're really interested, you say no, I really appreciate it. Love to have a strategic partnership. We're building a rocket ship here. And this would just be Correct. way too early to have this conversation. It's a really good place to start. And then you really scramble to, if I'm going to get serious about this, I need to introduce competition. And we, we, there are many ways to do that. Yeah. But I really appreciate that, that confidence in how you talk in that room. And I it's, mean to interrupt it's, you.
0: No, it's a, it's a big deal. I think it's a bigger deal than people give it credit. because people like A good deal person knows when you're bluffing.
1: Yes, absolutely. Um, absolutely. The best way to not bluff
0: is to not bluff. <laughs> <laughs> oh. um, one of the most memorable nights of my career was the night we ended up signing. I believe the night we signed the deal with AOL, although it might have been signing a term sheet or something. Okay, But we actually, we were camped out at the company's lawyer's offices at Skadden's offices in New York. And we had one of the bidders on one floor in a conference room and the other one on another floor in the conference room. And the guys, I was like, you know, in the back on a laptop or whatever. But, you know, the principals, the founders of Movie Fund were literally going back and forth between the two rooms. And I don't think they ever said like, hey, the other guys are downstairs. It was pretty clear that when they, they like disappeared and then they came back with something else. And I just think that made a big difference.
1: That's awesome. I mean, that reminds me of like cops shows, right, where they it's got totally two right criminals right. and who's gonna fold first? And your buddy's yeah. he's he's spilling the goods. You better come clean, yeah. right? Oh, what a, what a fantastic a tactic! So, in anything else that you would, because I'd love to get to the company yeah, you built. Yeah, right? yeah.
0: Um, I don't know. That's that's probably the well. Th- there's another one which comes up again, and it is a lesson that I guess I learned and then forgot. So I'll foreshadow where we're going, which is yeah. the importance of knowing the principle. Like the direct personal relationship that Mm -hmm. my boss had with Pittman, with Diller is what got it, not just what got it done, but what got it done fast.
1: Yep. Incredibly important because you you can align, right? The intention, everybody's on the same page. Things are prioritized when you know the people involved. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's jump in, right? So you have that transaction and now you're trying to figure out what, to do next and obviously landed on something fantastic so maybe
0: yeah i yeah i mean i I felt like i was ready to go start my own thing again like now you start your own thing when you're 19 years old but but i had had you know i'd been three jobs and a bunch of years out of college and you know i built a business etc so i was kind of ready to start my own thing and spent a bunch of months after after we closed the deal with aol and, and after i left and transitioned out i spent a bunch of while thinking about like what i wanted to start i was doing consulting at a bunch of places like just exploring different business plans talking with different people And the one consistent theme that I had was I really wanted to build a business. I really wanted to build a different kind of workplace Hmm. and a different kind of company. And again, you have to wind the clock back a little bit to 1999. Most knowledge economy companies, which is not even a term you hear anymore, right? But, But most companies that were like that were still managed in a very old school command and control way. So consulting was like that and banking was like that and venture was like that and, mm-hmm. uh, and tech companies were like that and, and media companies and movie phone was no different. And, you know, all these companies had like the plaque on the wall that said, you know, our assets walk out the door every day at 5 p.m. So they understood at some level how important people were to the business, but they didn't really know what to do with that mm-hmm. uh, because no one trained them. Right. Like management training when those people grew up was not about culture and values and, you know, freedom and flexibility. And it just, just wasn't like that. So <laughs> I had a real driving force to start a business so that I could prove out a model of a different workforce, a different way of working. Mm-hmm. And to some extent, it didn't matter to me what I did. So like the, the range of things I was looking at was very wide. The thing I settled on, which is the company that became Return Path. Was something in email marketing and analytics, and that was a space that I knew really well because I just spent four four and a half years running this web business for for Moviefone, and part of that was a an email email service that we launched called Movie Mail. So I knew a lot about the power of commercial email, and also some of the gaps around commercial email and opportunities there. So you know, working with a group of people, started Return Path, and at the end of '99. You know, and then it was twenty years later, and it was done. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean
1: that's a, that's a long time to have a company. Yeah. But you, you hinted at something which I had read about, w- which was uh, multiple co-founders, right? In this situation.
0: Well, my current company, Bolster, has eight founders. Oh wow! So that may be the thing you're thinking about. Oh, yeah, that's, I, that's right. That's a different story. This uh, was one one other I, partner. I did, I did start Movie Phone um, with you know with a partner and with some other people who uh, were ideating on the business with us. And, and then we did a foundational acquisition very early on in the company's life. And the guy who started that company, we also ended up calling him a co-founder. That's all about Return Path. Yeah. So Bolster, which is the company we started in 2020 after we sold Return Path, there are legit eight founders. And, and kind of <laughs> a different story there. But, uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, Return Path had at least one kind of legit day one co-founder, Jack Sinclair, who Great. was one of my founders at Bolster as well.
1: Awesome. Okay. So then the question doesn't really apply. It's two co-founders. You guys are going to go build something amazing. You have an experience in this commercial email and the, potentially the problems yeah. that are associated with that in the market. You go from kind of zero to a hundred million over 19 years. And I know there were multiple times where the door was knocking and people wanted to buy this thing. So can you tell me about like that decision, having gone through M&A, mm-hmm. understanding it, like, why do you turn them down? Right. You know, what do those processes look like? That would be great.
0: Yeah, it's, it was a long journey and there are lots of decision points along the way that, that I can talk about. The first one, which is funny, which I, I forgot to mention to you when we were doing the pregame, you know, starting a business in December of 99, which ended up being, you know, depending on how you count it, five or 10 months before. Everything blew up in the mm-hmm. in markets, right? Mm-hmm. It was such a crazy time to start a business that one of the people that was involved early on in, in, uh, in the founding of Return Path said to me, without kidding, as we were starting the company, he said, you know, I think you should hire a writer to follow you around and take notes. Huh. And you're going to write a book called Ready, Set, Exit. <laughs> because you're going to sell this company in five minutes (laughs) and like that's kind of what the world looked like yeah but but yeah i can point to like actually several things that happened along the journey from there so one we had our first offer to sell the company in the middle of 2000 so the company was pre-product wow um we had raised money uh angel money a big angel round um and uh and we had an offer uh, from DoubleClick to buy the business. Sure. And it seemed crazy to me because we didn't even have a product in market. And DoubleClick was highly acquisitive. I mean, they were the big company in ad tech. And and we said no. It's kind of interesting. I think if we had said yes, we would it would have ended up being worth nothing because then mm-hmm. everything crashed right afterwards. And mm-hmm. DoubleClick stock went through the floor. They had a lot of cash, and the business did very well, but their stock price was was nothing for a while. And we turned that into our first institutional financing. So we said, no, we're not interested in selling the business, but we'd love to have a strategic investment from you. So that was one kind of, the first time we said, no, we pivoted it into a venture investment. Great. Um, and it's so long ago now, I can't even, you know, it was a like an emotional decision at the time, even though it wouldn't have been worth a ton of money yeah. in the long run. It wasn't even, the headline price wasn't, wasn't even that great, but we just felt at the time, like we haven't even built, Uh, anything yet. Like, why would we sell the business? Like that was sort of the no, but then it was no, but by the way, write us a check for $8 million.
1: Can I ask you about that? Because I think a lot of people, a lot of listeners, fellow founders are going to say, Hey, how did you do that? How did you turn an offer into an investment? Like they clearly want to have ownership right of the business they'd like control ownership this allows them to have minority ownership but you yeah. know it's a it's a totally different game and different you got to make the decision right an acquirer who could be seen as very strategic to you is now going to be on your cap table yeah. so do you remember what was going through everybody's head of how you turned
0: turn the table
1: and and the decision you made
0: yeah i mean what i said was look i think we'll be a lot more valuable to you if we get to serve everyone in the industry and not just you okay uh, it was something along those along those lines, and they agreed.
1: And, and then they were on your cap table. Did they stay on your cap table for the nineteen years?
0: Oh no, I mean, so they were on the cap table for a while, mm-hmm. and then DoubleClick itself went through all kinds of all kinds of challenges as a public company, based on you know stock price and changes in the internet market and ad market and whatever. And uh, they got uh, taken private by Hellman and Friedman, and then. Uh, got acquired by Google. And somewhere in the mix of all of that, their stake had been diluted tremendously because after they made the investment, they never participated in a follow-on round. Okay. Which is a problem that you have frequently with strategic investors. And so in the end, they didn't own very much. And then we bought it back from them. Uh, and I can't remember whether I think we bought it back from Google after Google bought the company in whatever year that was. So they were, for the first couple of years, though, they were on the cap table and they were a strategic partner and a reseller. And we had a, you know, meaningful and decent business relationship. And actually, uh, you know, some, some great, uh, relationships that I have that continue to this day came from that, including Kevin Ryan, the CEO of DoubleClick. Jeff Epstein was the CFO of DoubleClick. He ended up as my audit committee chair at ReturnPath. One of the guys that was our client there, Ken uh, Takahashi, worked at ReturnPath for many years after that, and is one of my co-founders at Bolster. So it was a, a really kind of formative deal and set of relationships but didn't amount to a lot in the end uh, as a deal itself.
1: Got it. So, okay. So that was the first time you're approached, which is, you know, awesome stories out of it. And I think really good learnings. Okay. But you're approached multiple times while you're building this business.
0: Yeah. So, so if you fast forward from there, like 13 years and, and at that point we had a pretty substantial business, I can't remember, call it 50 million in, in ARR and, and had pivoted a couple times along the way to get there. We were approached by a company called Exact Target, and Exact Target was the largest company in the email business. So they were sort of kind of what DoubleClick had been in 2000. They actually became, and uh, and we were very good friends with the Exact Target guys. They were our biggest partner, and they had just gone public. And Scott Dorsey, their CEO, had orchestrated a, a, a masterful IPO with his team. It was a great company, and. They were our biggest reseller and he offered to buy us. And I, I, we said no. Um, Scott, to this day, is a very close friend. He went on to start High Alpha, which is a major investor in Bolster. So he's on my board now. So he and I, have, you know, remained very close over the years. But at the time, I said no to that offer. And, I, and in retrospect, that was a mistake. And it was a mistake. And, you, you know, these things are easier in retrospect. We ended up, I think we would have gotten much more economically out of selling the company at 50 million in revenue than yeah. we did out of selling it when it was 100 million in revenue based on market conditions based on what happened to exact target and its stock and based on the multiple that we got based on our growth rate and profitability and everything else um, and then it took us seven more years to get yeah. to get to the end so that was a, a little problematic in the rearview mirror but at the time we had just come off of our best year like our highest growth year And we were just cruising. Mm -hmm. And the offer we got, which again, in the rearview mirror would have been tremendous. We felt like it was not fully valued. Mm -hmm. We said the thing you said a few minutes ago, which was, hey, we're happy to just keep doing our thing. Yes. And the number that we had in our mind that was a takeout number was just it was too high. Mm -hmm. So it didn't happen. Um, And we remained friends. They remained a great partner. But uh, but that was. That was a, a no. That was in the rearview mirror. A mistake. Where the, the first one at double click was probably not a mistake.
1: So yeah, let me tap into that. So what's interesting is that fifty million of ARR, you are clearly making money, right? You're you said you were profitable, but that's a really nice lifestyle that you're having as an entrepreneur, right? I, and we, actually,
0: pay- I don't, I, we I'm pretty sure we were not profitable, but it was oh. it was a high enough growth that it was you know we, we were playing that game.
1: Got it. I misunderstood. So what's interesting is you talk about when you eventually exit seven years later, really hard to predict what is the market going to do? How long is it going to take to actually, you know, reach that, that moment when you have 50 million of ARR and somebody is making a bid on your business and you have a growth rate, we like to tell our founders that, you know, when you're thinking about your company in the, In terms of a nine inning baseball game, selling in that fourth inning when you are winning, when you got runs on the board, the the heart of the lineup's coming up. So there's just a lot more promise sitting there in the company. The buyer is buying the future of the business, right? They wanna buy getting you from 50 to 100. And so that's one side of it, right? They should be valuing it. It's a great time to sell a business. But, but also, in that seven years, I don't know if you had to take on more dilution, but your return on investment, right, is a moment in time yeah. versus seven years later. And if you take on more capital, you're just, your share is getting smaller. For and sure. so the hurdles are getting bigger. So yeah. I think our founders just need to go in eyes wide open of, you know, when is the right time to sell? And nobody has the crystal ball.
0: Nobody does. But look, I do a lot of CEO mentoring and I do a lot of exit coaching in particular. And it is one of the things I push people on pretty hard if they have a real offer and like a material offer in front of them that's going to that's going to make a difference in their life. And they're not running Facebook. Like, yeah, Zuckerberg made a brilliant move not selling for nine hundred and seventy five million. Right. Totally. How many of us run Facebook's like one in 10,000?
1: I think a lot of it is. I never want to be in the position to tell an entrepreneur they should sell a business, right? You know, only give your perspective and from experience and what you yeah. think the market is saying and the buyers are saying. But I think it's a lot of uh, uh, kind of emotional preparation and financial preparation.
0: Yes. yes.
1: What do you need? What What do you really want to do with the rest of your life, yeah. Matt? I'm guessing you're having a blast building a fifty million dollars ARR company you had a goal of building a different kind of company, treating people differently. So yeah. you're probably having a blast. And I think people put too much emphasis on, on yes. uh, on that top dollar amount it's like it's your life. how do you want to enjoy those years of your life And when you get an un- just if you can get an understanding of that before you enter these conversations you know what you can say yes to and you know what you should say no to it's
0: so, it's so it's so right and it is one of the things I coach entrepreneurs on when they're thinking about a sale or approached about a sale and you know there was a big component of it for us at the time which was, Hey, we're doing really well and you're not fully valuing the company. Fine. Mm. Turned out probably not right, but fine. But the other part was like, hey, we love what we're doing and we've built this unbelievable company and culture. And I can't imagine not doing that. Right. Right, right. And what, what I tell people now, and now, you know, I have the benefit of more years and experience and more companies, is if you like that one, you'll like the next one even mm. more.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> so uh, but it is it is very, very hard for a founder who has scaled a business and loves what they do. They love the people they work with. and uh, But you do have to think like, yep, there's a chapter after this, and that chapter can be even better if you want.
1: Matt, I gave that advice to a really good friend. He had a, a $12 million offer for a really early stage company backed by top venture firms, you know, Kleiner and, and Sequoia. And it's a $12 million offer to take him out. And uh, he comes to me. He said, "What do you What do you think I should do?" I'm like, "Man, take the money, change your life. This is a career path. You're going to do it so many more times. You're going to enjoy the next one even more, right? Go through the experience and you know change your life." Within 18 months, their product at the acquiring company became the name of the product, the entire product, and worth a billion dollars, right? So, my friend, he's like, "Hey, thanks a lot. I appreciate you. You know that advice." He did go on. And eighteen months later, sell the next company to Facebook six hours before they went public. So you can imagine what that turned into. But so my timing, my crystal ball is not yeah. never right. But this idea that you can change your life and you're going to enjoy the next one, like this, is what's in us as entrepreneurs. Um, and you're going to love the next one, uh, yeah. you know, just as much. Agreed. I, I love that statement.
0: That was the second. That no. was
1: number two. That was the, number
0: two. Okay. The third, no was only like a two, maybe two years after that. And there's a very specific lesson that comes out of this. So we had just taken on growth equity capital from a larger, later stage, kind of typical private equity investor, although it was a minority investment. Mm-hmm. And within 45 days of their uh, of their investment, we had uh, not a hard offer, but, uh, but very significant inbound interest at a very large number. Mm-hmm. And I don't we didn't end up pursuing it a ton, and I'll tell you why in a second. I don't know if it would have ended up coming to pass or not. But um, but I remember very distinctly the, the board conversation we had about this. Remember, these guys had put capital in 45 days prior. Mm-hmm. And they would have made 3x on their investment. Not 3x, but like 2.5x on their investment. And the IRR, obviously, yeah. is not, yeah. not like incalculable, right? Yes, yes. Um, and the partner who was on my board basically said, you know, my, our firm would view this as a disappointing outcome. Oh
1: my gosh. Yeah.
0: And look, I'm a big boy. I take responsibility for my own decision there, yeah. but it, but that was influential. Yeah. And, and it's stupid. It's unbelievably stupid that, that, that really, that's a disappointing, that's not a disappointing outcome. You are right. wrong. Yeah. <laughs> right. But that was meaningful. And it, my lesson coming out of that is there are a lot of voices in your head especially if you take taken multiple rounds of capital at multiple valuations and you have early stage guys that are making money no matter what you do and later stage guys with different hurdles, et cetera. And I see this all the time that the the last capital in is usually the least excited about the deal. Mm-hmm. And it's really hard as a founder to balance out all the voices in your head that have economic interests. And you do need to listen to all of them, just like you need to listen to all the stakeholders, but then you kind of need to block them all out Mm -hmm. just make a call. And someone that says they're going to be disappointed in a, you know, a two X, three X return after 45 days is literally is just wrong. And they're giving you bad advice.
1: (laughs) Yeah, we get we get this quite a bit where the loudest voice in the room in the boardroom tends to be an investor, and if the company is doing really well, they see that opportunity to say, "I want more of this company. I want to dump more of our dollars into our winners." Right? Their incentive is not aligned with necessarily with the founder. We have founders where we say, "Look, if you do this, if you take another fifty million dollars." your choices are like, there are three acquirers out there can actually buy you or you're going public. Is that, do you think that's the person that you want to be? Can you do that? Your ROI right now, forget about what those guys are saying. If you have the ability to to make that decision, you make the decision for you. Um, and you know, you can, it's, you have a fiduciary responsibility for all shareholders. Mm -hmm. I understand that. But when you're talking about a win of that magnitude for everyone, you're not, you can't make a a wrong decision. Um, Uh, so I appreciate you sharing that.
0: Yeah. No. And it's, it's really, you know, something that founders always have to keep in mind is you have one play and your investors have a hundred plays in their portfolio and, you know, they may be willing to take a risk with you that you don't need to take with you.
1: That's, that's so well said. I mean, that just really hits home for me. Um, They're just coming from a, you know, they're playing on a different field. Okay. So, you go, you finally go through it. Is it like 2019 at this point? Okay.
0: No, no, no. There's one, one more. Oh, no. right. so, uh, in, 20, in 2017, we had an inbound offer and we, and we, I, we were really ready to sell at this point. Like the business had gotten bigger. It had gotten profitable, mm-hmm. but growth had slowed down. Okay. And we had an inbound offer from a large company in the space that was private and looking at going public. And we were, we were really ready to sell the business at this point. So we engaged a banker, we co- contacted some of the large public companies in the space and, uh, we got one of them engaged and, um, uh, and got a much better counter offer from them and worked that process really hard and really effectively, like me and the banker going back and forth with the different people we knew at the, at the company. And we had an offer that we were really happy with, like really, really happy with and, um, signed the term sheet excruciating diligence process i mean this mm-hmm. is a large cap public company
1: so 60 90 uh, days like how long
0: um, sound it? something in there yeah, yeah. I, okay. I can't remember exactly what it was but like it's well, brutal lots, it's, tough. it's it. tough yeah yeah and um you know to the point where we had like we were we were probably four or five hundred people at the company and we had like 75 that were working on <laughs> the diligence right yeah yeah so not a secret <laughs> that this is going on and and we had the we had everything done we had the the a diligence was done. The legal documentation was done. They had had sign-off uh, on their side. Our board approved the deal, and so we're we're at, we're at like the one-inch line in mm-hmm. the football metaphor. Not 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 inside the red zone. We're like yeah. right there. Yeah. Press release written. All hands meeting scheduled. Yeah. Stuff delivered from the buyer to the office, like the swag, was in the office. Yeah. The cupcakes were in the office. (laughs) The champagne was in the office and our board had literally docu-signed the deal. Oh, wow. So, I mean, like whatever definition you have, red zone, 11th hour, like this is the 11th hour, 59th minute, 59th second. And they said, no.
1: What changed?
0: (laughs) They went through their final, normally perfunctory meeting Mm -hmm. of all the key stakeholders And, and my take on what happened, I was not in the room. The, the champion for the deal, the business owner for the deal Mm -hmm. was not present. He was on vacation. He had one of his lieutenants come, but a more junior person than everyone else in the room. The rest of the room is the executive team. Okay. The GC never really liked the deal.
1: Okay. Okay.
0: And the GC was very concerned about data privacy. We had a lot of data. The company didn't have a lot of data. This, is, this
1: is the Buyer's General Counsel?
0: Buyer's General Counsel. Yes, okay. And Buyer's General Counsel looks at the CEO and says, thumbs down. Ugh. And our champion was in Greece, probably asleep. Yeah. In the middle of the night, un, not involved. The more junior person in the room, like powerless to Mm -hmm. deal with that. And they pulled the plug.
1: Oh my gosh. That's that's crazy. I I know we're our average transactions around that fifty million dollar mark. We certainly have them over a hundred million. I know this was a a big one.
0: Multi hundred million. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And so, you know, to me. I see the relationships between investment bankers and M&A attorneys really on the sell side. You have a little bit less visibility of what's behind the curtain on the acquiring side. But you know, my only advice in this situation is that founders who are selling their businesses need to take control of their advisors at these points. You're yeah. making decisions, right? And you've got to force those decisions and not let people disrupt at the goal line like that. But uh, this, incredibly this, frustrating. I mean, I know it's, on, I know it's the buyer, right? So yeah,
0: this was the buyer and we, like we had, and it, and it was internal with the buyer. It wasn't their advisors. Um, yeah, it's,
1: it's general counsel. You're right. Yep. Yeah. Yep. It was
0: not an advisor problem at all. We had great advisors on it. Uh, and you know, the, the mistakes coming out of it to go back to my movie phone story, I did not have a personal relationship with the CEO. There you go. And I did with the business owner. Although it wasn't a great and deep one, but I, mm-hmm. I did, but then he yep. went there and he didn't, it wasn't his decision at the end of the day. It was someone yep. else's decision. Oh, that's tough. Um, and, um, and that was really the biggest problem. I think if, if I had had that personal relationship and there had been that emotional commitment to do the deal at that level, I don't yep. think it would have blown up.
1: I think you're I don't know, but it is very common, right, in these processes where you want the two CEOs to get along, right? You want to create that a little bit of emotional bond, understand the the fit, the culture side of it, and that. I
0: had asked, I had asked along the way, like I think I should meet blah (laughs) blah. Yeah, I'm being super nice here, sure, sure. That I am still angry at, Uh, (laughs) and I never met him. And I, I knew that was a potential problem. I just yeah. didn't realize it was going to be a fatal problem.
1: It's a double whammy because they know it's coming. And all of that due diligence time is time taken away from their day job, right? Of running the business.
0: Right. And then what uh, happened is a handful of key people left.
1: That's brutal. Yeah. Because it
0: had gotten to the point where I had told a bunch of people they were going to be out of a job. Mm-hmm. Yep. Like I had made people offers of what their new comp was going to So everyone was getting a raise. Everyone was getting cashed out. Everyone was getting RSUs in a public buyer. Some people were getting fired. So everyone was either psyched to go forward in one direction or new or we're already looking for a job. So you get to that point and it blows up and a bunch of people leave. Yep. And yeah, we hadn't, you know, hand hadn't quite been on the wheel for a couple quarters. So it took us two more years to recover and sell the business at that point. And at that point, we did the thing that you know you're not supposed to do, which is sell the company right everyone says the best deals are the ones where you're bought not where you're sold and all the other ones that we had entertained over the years were ones where a buyer came to us sure and finally after 19 and a half years we're like all right we're just going to run a process and see where it goes and we had a perfectly good outcome and it worked very well and i'm happy to talk about that as well but it was but it was a sell the company it was not a someone came to buy the company and that was a that was a big big challenge
1: Matt, can I ask on the one that was successful, did you bring all of these 70 more people under the fold to to get that done? Or was that maybe a lesson?
0: No, I mean, we didn't have a choice the first time around, but the second time around, we didn't need to. It was a totally different construct. So there were like 20 of us that knew or something.
1: Got it. Got it. Yeah. I, I went through something similar, much smaller scale, but l- told all the, the employees, you know, I'll continue to pay you for a period of time, but you got to find new work because you guys are not being brought a- across the goal line. I moved to Silicon Valley, had my desk at the acquirer, signed the documents, and they canceled it in a board meeting in August of 2008 when their board said, the world is, is
0: falling.
1: The, the world is falling cancel everything so i got to a goal line once before and, and oh, then sorry, realized that august, similar pain
0: august 08? yes uh, august 08, i had a financing blow up in august 08.
1: <laughs> it was it was a tough time right but coming yeah. back your tail between your legs with yeah. very few employees left right because you yeah. encouraged them to find new work it, it's yeah. it's tough right all right so anything you want to talk about with the one that was successful you, you obviously had some lessons learned but what, did, what, yeah. what made it happen ultimately um,
0: you know, these things always have a little bit of lock and timing to them, which is fine. It had that, Mm -hmm. but you know, so reflecting back on the whole of this conversation, the biggest thing is that we had, we had multiple options Mm -hmm. and we were able uh, to a point you made early on, which I didn't make. What we did is we didn't just turn it into the best offer from the best buyer. We controlled the process and the timing. Mm -hmm. And we said, yep, I, you know, I, we looked each other in the eye and I said, I will do this deal with you, but it will be done in 30 days. Mm-hmm. And it was. That's great. Yeah.
1: Matt, I, I, I want to be respectful of your time. <laughs> I, and I do want to hear what you're doing right now, because I think it's it's absolutely a needed service and, and and it's the right time to be doing it too. Can you talk a little bit about your current company?
0: Yeah. So Bolster was started by eight of us who had been on the team together at Return Path. We started it early 2020, right at like the beginning of covid and we, uh, you know, we had had this, this 20 year journey of building and scaling ourselves as executives and building and scaling, you know, building and scaling a business. And we had, I would say the last 10 years of the 20 years, we had spent a lot of time mentoring and coaching other founders and CEOs and CXOs. And we decided we wanted to start another business together that whose mission was to help founders and CEOs scale their businesses So, I mean, we're we're very much a for-profit business, but it was really, um, the origins were very like, give back to the startup community a little bit. Sure. Which sounds a little bit like what you're doing as well. Yeah. And uh, so we started Bolster as a a marketplace for executive talent. Uh, So two-sided B2B marketplace model. And we started, and and what we have done for most of our journey until recently, was a marketplace for what we called on-demand executive talent. Sure. Uh, so, helping startups and scale-ups find senior executives for anything other than full-time roles—that was V one. V two is we've expanded into full-time, which I'll talk about in a second.
1: Sure.
0: But uh, but the idea was very much that you know early-stage and growth-stage companies need access to executives for projects, for fractional roles, for interim roles, as advisors, as functional mentors, as coaches, and as independent directors. Yeah. Um, and there's really no like kind of central anything for that. I mean, you know, LinkedIn is a behemoth for finding anything and finding nothing. Mm-hmm. But but that was Bolster 1.0. And uh, we had a really, really good first couple of years. We accumulated a couple thousand CEOs as clients. We accumulated 10 or 15,000 senior executives as members that we invited in to the network. Uh, so it's kind of lightly curated. And we've probably placed 300 people in fractional mm-hmm. roles or in board seats. And, and I think really, really having very positive impact on, on, uh, on clients. And a couple of things happened maybe about six months ago. One was we realized that that business was going to take a long time to get scaled. You know, it's a, it, that business was a marketplace model. So we got a percentage of, uh, you know, whatever someone was hired for. But when people are getting hired for projects, there's not a lot of money changing hands. So getting a small percentage of not a lot of money is even less money. (laughs) And um, it's a very transactional business. It's infrequent transactions and and it's kind of small dollars. So we love it. It works really well. We actually deliver that um, profitably on the marginal basis and very efficiently. So we're, we're still doing that and leaning into that. But we also had a lot of clients come to us and ask us if we could do full-time search work for them. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that we were thinking about when we started the marketplace for fractional executives was that there needed to be alternatives to to full-time search where either you hire a retained search firm and spend a fortune on it, Mm -hmm. or you email a few friends and ask who knows someone and maybe something shows up. So we had that construct from the beginning of creating, um, you know, kind of a, a low-touch or mid-touch uh, type of marketplace uh, to be more efficient and also more cost-effective. cost, uh, cost effective. But we weren't doing full-time, and now we're doing full-time. So that's sort of our big news in the last couple months. We've done a small acquisition that gives us a lot more heft in machine learning, which is a really important part of making the search process more efficient. Um, you're always going to need humans in the middle of executive search. but. But data and data science can, can do a lot of things that right now people are doing off the top of their head or with spreadsheets. And then we're, we're bulking up the team and adding some really, really top-notch professionals from the recruiting world yeah. um, who can add the human element where it needs to be added, but also really take advantage of, um, of AI and of our platform in general. And um, we're doing a great job for clients here. We do full-time searches for a small fraction of what they'd be paying a search firm, we deliver the same candidates much more quickly. And, uh, you know, we expect we're going to build a platform that's a very meaningful part of of the startup and growth ecosystem.
1: Matt, what I love about it is that I think of our early stage founders and certainly my experience, how do I bring in somebody with that kind of talent? You know the the expense is enormous, and then the commitment to a full time employee, right? You you don't want to like hire and fire people, right? These are people's lives, and I could almost see you know myself as as starting a company saying I will pay for one full time person, but I want to almost be able to bring them in in and out, right? Chief marketing officer, head of AI. It's uh, I'm I know you're finding your way into the right. Uh, business model, but the need yeah. seems to be very, very obvious. Uh, you know, we, we're similar in the network, where you called it kind of low or mid touch. We're really high touch, right? Bringing yeah. the best M and A experts in the world, but we're like the coach of that team, yeah. And and we're thinking about how do we potentially lower the cost burden by having a lower touch model. Um, so it's really interesting. We got to stay connected. I want to yeah, see sure. how, how that continues, yeah. Matt. I really appreciate you being here. Uh, this is fantastic. There are so many lessons in each one of those M and a experiences. Okay. I know people are going to get a ton out of this. Is there, is there any kind of last words of wisdom um, that you'd like to impart?
0: Yeah. So look, one piece of advice, I, you know, I feel like I've dispensed a lot of advice here. All those things were yeah. important. Multiple bidders and plan B is important. Personal relationship is important. Getting the timing right is important. Not falling in love with your own business is important. All of those are important. Um, But the one thing we didn't have a chance to talk about that I feel very strongly about is that founders need to spend real time and energy preparing themselves and their loved ones for an exit. Mm -hmm. And this is advice that was given to me by one of my friends and mentors, actually one of the co-founders of Moviefone, who, who I've stayed very close with over the years, who's now been a CEO of multiple companies. And he went through an exit years before I did and, and said that regretted not bringing his kids along for the ride Hmm. and his kids were teenagers at the time. And my kids were teenagers when I sold, uh, when I sold return path and I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, they really didn't like, they didn't really know what I did every day. And like their image of me was that I was the company and the company was me. And we all had the t-shirts and the, s- the swag and like, they, you know, they sort of had this, this cartoonish version of the whole thing. And when I told them that we so, so had sold the business or were selling the business the next day, they freaked out. <laughs> and I said, what do you mean they freaked out? And he's like, well, they didn't understand that like we just got a big check and like yeah. life was good. The first thing, I mean, they started crying, he said. And the first thing they said was, oh my gosh, are you going to be unemployed? <laughs> So I sort of took from that, that I took two things. The immediate thing was like, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to bring the kids along for the ride with this. So, Mm -hmm. um, so I did and, um, spent a lot of time with, you know, with my wife and kids, the, the, you know, six months leading up to the ultimate sale of the business. And I brought the topic into the dinner table. And I Uh said, you know, we just, we do like a little annual goals process at home. And in January of that year, I said, I think this is the year we're going to sell the company. And one, one or two of the kids started crying. My friend (laughs) was right. And, but by the end of it, I was coming home for dinner and my little one was like, what happened in due diligence today? (laughs) You know, like, when are you going to deliver the goods? (laughs) So, so like preparing the family was really, really important, but preparing yourself as an entrepreneur emotionally for the journey Mm -hmm. of going through the sale and it's not yours anymore. And you're handing the keys to someone else, incredibly important. And there's no one way to do that, but whether it's being introspective or working with a coach or Doing journaling or doing whatever you have to do so that the end of it is happy and thankful. And also, you've given yourself a measure of closure as opposed to getting the end of it and being bummed out or angry that the buyer is doing something that you don't like or or whatnot. So that is my, my one piece of advice.
1: I love it, Matt. We we've heard from uh, time and time again from founders. It, you know, it feels like a gut punch. Oh, I should have brought my wife into that uh, whole experience because it was so difficult and she should have seen what I was going through. Um, and there are many times where it just feels like finality, I know we basically have on the wall, our job is to translate emotion to finance and finance to emotion in an M&A process. And we really try to help founders through that, figuring out ahead of time, how do they strategize, how they're going to feel about it, how to prepare for it. So it's, it's incredibly meaningful. Thank you uh, for, for leaving us with that. So uh, really thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. Good conversation. Thanks again for listening to the Cashing Out podcast. For more founder exit stories, please subscribe to the Cashing Out podcast on Apple iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And please remember, ExitWise.com and the Cashing Out podcast are for entertainment purposes only. This should not be relied upon as the basis for investment decisions.